Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Tzadi Aleph, page 91. Um, before we delve into the daf, and Yardena, I'm actually going to turn it over to you for the first mission on the daf, um, or the only mission on the daf. Um, we have a concept that we need to understand, which is a little bit tricky to understand, which should not surprise us, I suppose. Um, it's called motar dinar. It means when, if there's a leftover dinar, the dinar being the, the sum of currency, right? The kind of coin, whatever. And it basically falls out um, if there is, it's a concept that comes into play when um, a man inherits, let's start from the beginning. A couple gets married. Um, the woman brings stuff into the marriage, property, her dowry, etc. In general, we've been talking about in the case where she, where the husband would then, you know, they would either divorce or the husband would die, and she would get the ketubah. But in this this scenario, we're talking about a situation where the the wife predeceases the husband. He then inherits whatever she's brought into the marriage. Meaning, in the event of divorce, let's say it would all go back to her as she leaves the marriage. But in this case, she doesn't. She she leaves the marriage via death, so he inherits. And then the question is, what happens to that to that property when he himself dies, and his he he's able to bequeath it right to his heirs? The question is, what happens if he has sons, children, let's say, from a different marriage? And now you've got a question of the ketuba and extra that were the one wife's, and the ketuba and extra that or possible extra that were the other wife. So if there's no extra, if it's really just literally the only inheritance is the sum of the ketubot, right? Then the children of the one wife inherit that ketubah and the children from the other wife inherit the other ketubah. But what happens if there's motar dinar? If there's a, a leftover, motar, leftover, dinar, the sum of one dinar from the extra that one of the wives or both of the wives brought into the marriage. And in that case, there's going to be a a whole lot of discussion, and we actually saw a fair bit of this discussion on the end of um, page ninety, right, the previous staff, about exactly what's going to happen to that extra. Who gets it? Is it entitled? You know, can the the sons or children of the other wife get the motar dinar from the first wife? And the tricky part here is because the assumption is that whatever the wife is bringing into the marriage, it's coming from her father which is maybe not legitimate. She might have her own earnings or whatever, but the presumption is that the dowry comes from her father's house, in which case the whole reason that you want to encourage the father, her father, to give a larger dowry is because then her children will inherit that. But he might not be so inclined if what's going to happen is that the other children, meaning the the father's children, but not the grand, but not the mother's children, because it's from a different marriage, in which case the grandfather, meaning the, the mother's father, will be like, yeah, but who cares? I don't want those kids to get this, this inheritance. So the question of who gets the motar dinar, what happens in the event of motar dinar is important. I should note that there's a machloket, apparently machloket rishonim, whether motar dinar means literally one dinar, that that's the amount of difference, or if it really just means, you know, anything left over, and it's clearly monetary, so we're going to say leftover money, so to speak. Um, Yardina, I'm handing it over to you for the Mishnah, which uses this phrase. Right, it's just interesting to see how sort of the money that the wife brings in 
it's the concept of Motardina sort of acknowledges that that father has the intention through his daughter to make sure that that sort of goes through to that daughter's children. That that's sort of like kept wealth for his, for his, you know, daughter's line. Yeah, I it, I think that this is exactly where the dilemma comes in, right? Because at what point do you say, this is why there's Machloket, this is why it's a debate, who who's going to get it and, and what happens altogether? Because, because you want it to go, yes, he wants it to go directly through that line. It's not so clear that it always will. Right, or that it can. All right, so we have a lengthy Mishnah here. Misha Nashim. So somebody married two women, but me too, they both die. And then he dies. So the children of both of those women, right, the heirs of both of those women want to collect the ketubah, and there's just enough for the two ketubot. So we just, you know, we basically distribute the estate equally in half, and everybody gets, you know, they get the ketubah. Um, so again, here we have the concept we have the motar dinar so in that case if it's more than the value of the two kids who both right we have the motar dinar then everybody just collects the 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 uh the contracts right they get the ketuba and then that motar dinar is basically going to be divided up amongst the sons but if the Yutomim say, Anu Ma'alim Al Avinu, Dinar, Iman. So now this is where it gets a little bit interesting and tricky. If the orphans who are basically uh who are gonna get the, you know, sort of a larger settlement, okay, you know, uh, or they have a, a larger amount of the marriage settlement that's more. They say we inflate, right? We increase the value of our father's property by a dinar. In other words, we will agree to say that this property that we'll receive for our mother's ketubah is at a higher value than the market value so that there basically will be a dinar left in the estate after the marriage contracts have been paid out, right? And so then basically they can collect the full value of their mother's estate we don't listen to them. Rather, the property has to be appraised by the court and then you distribute it based on that. So essentially what's happening here is, is that the first case is, is that you have exactly the marriage con- the value of the marriage contracts itself, okay? So the marriage contracts, they can't really be collected. So it's more just you divide the estate in half. So like, Yes, you're sort of getting the value of the marriage contract, but it's not really the marriage contract. It's not really the ketubah. The second case is with Motardine. With Motardine, we say, okay, you're getting the value of the ketubah, and what's ever left over then gets divided between the two sets of heirs. The third case is saying that let's say, because obviously it's advantageous to have a situation of Motardine, that the Yatomim basically come and say, okay, we're going to like, butts around with what the value of the estate is, and we're going to pretend it's actually worth more than it is, right? So we can sort of get to a motardine. We basically don't let them do that. You can't like sort of pretend that it has a value that it doesn't have. Now, if there's potential, you know, inheritance there, meaning 
There's no motar dinar, right, with the properties of the estate. But, you know, there's property that maybe was going to be paid to the estate, which would increase the overall value of the estate. So there ends up being a motar dinar. In other words, there's nechassim. There's something from the outside that can come in that could get it. We, it's enokimichuzak. We don't consider it as part of the possession when we're looking at the actual estate. In other words, it either has to be there as part of the estate or not as part of the estate. But not, you know, nechassim b'ra'uli. Potential nechassim cannot add to the value. Rabbi Shimon Omer, afilu yesham nechassim she'en lahem Let's say there's property that is not a guarantee for a loan. So in other words, it's considered to be movable property, right? It's, it's property that couldn't be served as a, as a guarantee for a loan. A non-clue, it doesn't have any impact on the value of the estate. The kitubot that the male children can be, you know, are not collected basically unless there's property that serves as a guarantee. In other words, remember, when you, it wasn't just that you signed the ketubah, you sort of had to have the property that was the value of the ketubah so that when the ketubah needed to be collected, you knew that that property, that value was going to be there. So you needed to have property that served as a guarantee that exceeded the value of the two marriage contracts by at least one dinar. So essentially what we see in this Mishnah is, is that, you know, these are very complicated issues of how do estates get inherited. Again, as I discussed yesterday, polygamy is basically an assumption, right? That's not, you know, the exception. We assume that there could be polygamy in many of these arrangements, right? There's two wives. Therefore, there's going to be two sets of inheritance. So I think that's also interesting that we see, you know, because part of the inheritance is automatically tied up with the ketubah. So each wife's children is sort of protected or inherits in their own way. But the issue is, is that there's sort of like the ketubah value is part of the inheritance. And then the motar dinar, either being actually a value of a dinar, and as you explained with the machlok rishonim, or just whatever is left over, that's what then sort of gets split by the other, by the heirs as sort of like, oh, that's the, that's the estate itself. Um, and I, the point of the mission basically is, is we can't inflate or create a value of motar dinar. Either it's there or it's not there. Right. They have to take that assessment of the, the sum total of the estate and determine, you know, yes, there's a surplus to mess with or to debate or whatever, or there's no surplus, in which case there's nothing really to talk about. Right. Um, and, I do and find I'll it interesting. Yes, before sir. you get started. So the Gemara starts off with like, when you read this Mishnah, the assumption is it's like equal ketubot, right? Like in other words, let's say each is the matayim. The Gemara starts off automatically with a discussion of Tanu Rabbanan, Lazo Elabilazo Kameshmeot, right? That one marriage contract was a thousand DRs, one ketubot is 500, right? V'im Yesham Motar Dinar, and then if there's the surplus, right? Elonotlin ketubat iman, Elonotlin ketubat iman. Each one is going to get the value of their mother's contract. Like it doesn't have to, it's not divided equally in the sense necessarily that the ketubas were equal. It's just divided according to like what each set of children get based on the ketuba of their mother. So that's also like another interesting point because when you read the Mishnah initially, it kind of makes, it, it reads as if the ketubot were equal value. And here the, we start off with the Brisa that talks about 
What if the ketubah were not of equal value? I think also we can note that we've reached the part of this Gemara where we're dealing with cases that are inherently not the, like the standard textbook template Stepford Wives kind of case, right? We're not talking about a case of a man and a woman who, you know, either get divorced or the, the husband dies, right? We're talking about there's been two marriages, there's two ketubot, there's different values, right? Like messy before you even begin. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Now, what you want to do something and I'm going to wrap. I do. So we have here, you know, we talk sometimes about these simanim, that the Gemara gives a siman, it's a mnemonic for, to help the people who knew the Gemara by heart to be able to recite it in order. So here's the mnemonic. I actually find it, usually it's a, a little bit of a mumbo jumbo. You know, it's just letters and then it's literally just a, the same way people remember, I don't know, parts of the body or something for a medical class, right? So this is um, this is a little more explicit. Siman. Elef umeya mitzvah b'ktubah Yaakov zakaf stotav bidvarim asikim. So it says 1,100 mitzvah in the marriage contract. Yaakov set up his fields with words, disputants, askinam, people who are like, you know, making trouble. So it's not a real sentence, meaning it sounds like it's a real sentence, but it's not a real sentence. And that's already where it becomes interesting to me because, because this is the mnemonic, meaning to remember a thousand, a hundred mitzvah, b'ktuba, Yaakov, right? It just gets, it, it's all, it sounds very picturesque. And now the question is, how does that translate? And we're not going to, unfortunately, be able to unpack all of it right now, but a little bit. So what happens? We have here, there's a man who had a creditor with a claim of 1,000 dinar. That's the, that's the first LF, right? A thousand dinar against him. Havu late tre apdane. So what happens? He had two mansions. That's the word apadane is mansions. He sells them and he gets one. He sells one for 500. He sells the other for 500. So then the creditor comes and gets and takes it back. He repossesses one of them from the purchaser because he's owed a thousand. So he should be able to collect, you know, what? <laughs> The, the guy who own, who owes the money can't sell this and not get turn the money over to the guy he owes money to. So when he doesn't, when he when he takes the money to his own pocket, the creditor says, no, I'm getting that. He goes to the, to the customer, the guy who bought the, the mansion and wants to repossess it. And he's technically allowed, right? And then he wants to get the other mansion as well, right? Um, Hadar Katari Katari and then he wants so first he comes to get the first one and then he wants to get the second one. Shkal Alpha Zuza Gabe. So the purchaser took one thousand dinar and went to the creditor. Amar Lay Ishavilach Alpha Zuze Lachayai Bila Shakil Alpha Zuzeva is the lake. He says, if the first mansion that you repossessed here is worth a thousand dinar to you, then let it be yours. Meaning then take that mansion. Let it be worth a thousand dinar and you keep the whole of it. But if not, take the thousand dinar and leave me the mansions, right? I bought these mansions. I want those mansions. And here I'm giving you your cash. Meaning the customer, the buyer of the homes is paying off the creditor. So Rami Barhama says that this case of these mansions, right, 
is the same one as that which is in the Mishnah, where the question is where the orphans might inflate the value of the property by a dinar. So if the court is not to them, right? and that seems to be the case here also, if the value of the mansion is 500 dinar, then it should not be assessed at 1,000 dinar. So Rava says, Amarle Rava, Midami, who says, you know, are these cases really comparable? Are they really the same? Who says that there's a financial loss? Right there in the mission, there's a case of the orphans are going to lose the, the, the Ketuba money, you know, at a lesser value if they don't actually, you know, if they try to, if they're trying to inflate it to make sure that they get what's coming to them. That's a really different scenario than here where we're talking about a creditor who's not going to get a loss because he lent a thousand dinar and he's going to get a thousand dinar back. Um, Alpha Yahiv Alpha Shakyo, right? He lent out 1,000 dinar and he is supposed to then get 1,000 back in the way he's coming to repossess the value. The Tirfa Bakamak Katvinan. So the man wants to know what is the amount that was written in the document to begin with, the document that authorized the repossession that was the lien, right? How much can he really claim if the, because the buyer only paid 500 dinar. So then to repossess it, to say that he's gonna that the that the creditor is now gonna get the thousand dinar when he repossesses it, that means that the buyer is fundamentally paying that much more for the same property. Now he's paying that much more money because he wants the guy off his back and he wants the house, or the mansion, whatever. So Ravina says, Ravina Mar Alpha, it was written for a thousand dinar. So the fact that then he sold it for five hundred dinar is a complete. Um, he's underselling to get some quick cash, right? Rav Avira Amar Bachamesh but Rav Avira says no, it was written for five hundred dinar. So that's exactly the question: was he was he was it valued at a thousand, and he's selling it for quick cash at five hundred, or is it valued at five hundred, and then the the buyer wants to get the creditor off his back, so he'll sell it, he'll give he'll give him the extra five, well, he'll give him a thousand in cash. To be able to keep the property, So the Gemara concludes that the halacha is that the the thing the document was written to begin with for five hundred dinar, not a thousand. Okay, um, I want to stop here, um, in the interest of time. But the next thing that happens is a case about mea dinar, right? To go back to our mnemonic, that we end up with. We start with a case of a thousand, then we've got a story about a creditor with a claim of a hundred, um, and then. Let's see, is mitzvah all this stuff still? Um, perhaps. And ketubah is on this daf, right? If you trace through the different passages, the different sigils that come up, we're going to end up seeing how that mnemonic um, lines up with all of the different material to follow in chunks, right? Meaning you get a chunk on elef, you get a chunk on mea, and so on going through. Um, it doesn't finish on this daf because... Because it's longer than that. I mean, that's that's the material. Yeah, I mean, these are very, you know, for someone who's not a lawyer or does property law, these cases are very interesting and a little bit confusing. But I really uh, appreciate the way that, like, the Gamar is basically saying you can't outsmart the system. You can't say something's worth more money than it actually is. I mean, that's basically just a financial crime, which we've seen many of, you know, obviously of different varieties where people inflate value of things, uh, you know, in order to make money. And, uh, 
you know, we see already, obviously this is a problem that's thousands of years old. Yeah, but the halacha is here to account for that. Yeah, which I find fascinating. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrum website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.